welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on the program, we'll hear two conversations on the topic of World War II. At the end of the program, we'll hear a short excerpt from a 2015 interview with military historian Sir Hugh Strawn. Strawn discussed why he believes we gain wisdom from studying the history of war. But first, we'll hear a conversation with World War II photographer Malcolm Fleming. Andy Finley spoke with Fleming earlier this year. Our guest today is Professor Malcolm Fleming, a professor emeritus of education at Indiana University. Before joining the Indiana University community, Professor Fleming served as an official Army Signal Corps photographer from 1942 to 1945 and was assigned to capture images of significant events during the Second World War. Professor Fleming spent part of his service in the European theater, including Germany itself. His photographs from this period capture the wartime experiences of a World War II veteran as he moved from U.S.-based training to the war itself and eventually the occupation and reconstruction of Germany. In May of 2016, Professor Fleming published his collection of photographs in the book titled From War to Peace in 1945 Germany, A G.I.'s Experience. Today, we're thankful to have him here with us to discuss this extraordinary book. Professor Fleming, thank you for being here today. Uh, I spent only... uh about a third of my uh, army service in Germany. Okay. Uh, another third was in training in New York City, mm-hmm. and another third was uh, on the West Coast. I was had just gotten a bachelor's in Oregon State, and I'd gone to the University of Washington to begin a uh, master's. And then I heard rumors from Fairview, my hometown, that the draft board was getting close to my number. And so I did uh, what I guess others do. I looked around and I uh, volunteered in the uh, Signal Corps in Seattle, whose role was to provide equipment and know-how to Alaska, and they're setting up, I think, what was called a do line to listen to our Russian neighbors and everything. So for a year, I I learned how how to tell one condenser and one resistor from another, and be able to fill boxes with electronic gear to go to Alaska. And then just to make the transition, um, became widely known that Uncle Sam was very unhappy about the number of GIs that were able-bodied GIs that were still stateside. And we were given an opportunity to put in for a transfer or get on over to basic training. And so I put in for a transfer to the Signal Corps Photo Center on Long Island, New York. And that's when I began my photo training there. It was about a year there, and then about, about another year in Germany. So. 
So what can you tell us about your training prior to the war? I understand that you were interested in photography from a very early age, but did you kind of learn as you went during your service? And would you say that your training in photography was focused more on documentation or on artistry in terms of the subjects you chose and the Mm. methods of your photography? The training was documentation, no question about that. Actually, when I was a kid, maybe a teenager by then, but no. Anyway... I learned that in Portland, Kodak was giving lessons. So I took a bus to where the training was and uh, three times, <laughs> once for taking pictures, uh, once for processing the pictures in the darkroom, once for making prints in the darkroom. This was in Portland. And um, so I was into that part of the photography with a box camera pretty early. And then in college uh, and in high school, I did as much more with it as I could. But the training in New York City was um, partly really Army-related. They did such things as uh, uh, put us in a foxhole with a camera and have a little tank drive over us. It's a small prank. They called it a weasel. Uh, drive over us and we were supposed to send mm. pictures of it coming to us in, in duck. Uh, so there were a few little exercises like that uh, at the training center. Otherwise, we were, we were billeted downtown in uh, New York City near Times Square, an old hotel called the American Hotel. And we were just to take pictures, take pictures, take pictures. So during those several months, I took pictures of everything from the uh, tall buildings to fairs at the outside of town to vendors in town and to... uh, uh, even inside uh, a cathedral, I took some pictures. Anyway, it was, and all of those we processed then, and they were all critiqued by a sergeant and would tell us what was good and bad. And uh, the rest of the training was really in the field. I um, passed their coursework on with a speed graphic camera, which was the professional press camera of the day. Took four by five inch pictures. Was this your Valenda camera? No. Different? No, that was my little private camera of my own, tiny compared to the speed graphic. Anyway, when I got to the European Theater uh, in the replacement depot, they said, we have already have plenty of still photographers. So the sergeant sat me down one night and taught me how to load a handheld motion picture camera, an IMO. And uh, it looks kind of like the, uh, the amateur 16-millimeter motion picture cameras you see. But this was 35 millimeter. It was a professional camera. Took regular theater size film, 100 foot rolls. And um, so overnight, 
overnight and sort of army style and <laughs> make do. I at least learned, learned how to, <laughs> to load the darn thing. And uh, the photography part was straightforward and lenses were marked the same way as in the still camera, so that part wasn't a problem. But what to do with a motion picture camera when you're approaching something important was what I learned in the field. And the procedure I learned was take a long shot first to get the whole scene in, then move in for a medium distance shot to focus in on the subject more, and then do a bunch of close-ups of the interesting part of what's going on, and then back off at the end for a re-establishing shot. Well, and that was sort of the procedure that I learned in the field. And I fitted into the 165th Signal Photo Company and became a part of it. And uh, I learned much from the guys that had been there for quite a while. We had a Jeep, and um, each morning we'd check into a division headquarters to G2, to intelligence, and we'd find out what had been happening the night before out where the GIs were fighting and get an opinion from uh, headquarters what they wanted photographed. And then we'd go out and do that during the day and then come back at night, bring our film in, they'd fly it to England for processing. And uh, that was sort of the, the standard operating procedure. Now, you're from the West Coast, a small town in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, not yeah. by birth, but, but certainly throughout your adolescence. Mm-hmm. For many GIs in the Second World War, um, service was training and then service was their first real chance to see the, the rest of the country mm-hmm. and, and the world itself. Was that your first experience in New York City when you went for training? Yes. What can you tell us about New York City in the 1940s, your impressions of wartime urban American life? Of course, I can't make comparisons. <laughs> I didn't see it before. But um, it just was buzzing, doing its usual thing. People were vending on the streets, uh, cleaning up streets, uh, what have you. And uh, we just documented I was particularly intrigued by uh, children. I particularly remember uh, a couple of kids that were seated on an orange crate on the sidewalk, one on either end, were playing cards. <laughs> Picture of that, and uh, that was sort of. Partly the relaxed nature of what seemed to be going on there. Uh, I shot pictures of kids in the parks and adults cleaning windows or policing the corner or selling goods or whatever they were doing. And during this period, you were free to choose your subjects at will? We were getting some suggestions and particularly in the way of variety. Well, I wondered, when I was reading your book, of course, the book is arranged in chronological order mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. rather than thematic. But then yeah. again, uh, throughout the book, the subject matter, it seems, is clustered mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. into larger groups throughout the uh, chronological 
mm-hmm. period of mm-hmm. your photographic uh, mm-hmm. collection. You know, you range from individuals to group action shots to scenes of still really landscape and cityscape destruction, mm-hmm. uh, and even include images of posters and notices. Mm-hmm. I know to some degree your assignments dictated what you photographed mm-hmm. and the subjects you chose. Was there mm-hmm. any that you found particularly compelling? Well, it's kind of funny. As I look back on my photographic uh, collection since my Army uh, career, it's mostly scenics, I guess, because we traveled. Whereas in the service, the collection, as I look back on it, is, uh, is mostly people. I guess it's particularly uh, understandable. When you're shooting a war, it, it is people and and maybe a tank or a big gun or something, but mostly it's people. And uh, so I've, I've changed some in that regard. And as I look back on my career choices, I wasn't interested in portraiture. I was interested in shooting the outdoors. I, was, I liked to hike and take pictures of the outdoors. Otherwise, I guess uh, my... My slide collection, I had about 5,000 color slides, which I've turned over to uh, IU. uh, But I guess I'd say regards people, I didn't tend toward posed shots. I wanted candid shots. And uh, that was perhaps all that the war photography was, was just shooting what was going on. And not much pose there. (laughs) That was was reality, and we just documented it. And that's fascinating because Mm -hmm. over the past 150 years or so, photography has has really changed the way that civilians view and understand warfare. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually, at least in my experience, the images I see are either of total destruction Mm -hmm. or of a visual account of celebration. You know, Mm -hmm. for example, the famous photo of the sailor. Yeah. Kissing a Companion in Times yeah. Square, or the yeah. Iwo Jima flag raising, which oh. in fact was a posed photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, your book provides, I think, a broader perspective, including images, a lot of images of downtime, of soldiers standing mm-hmm. around during war, mm-hmm. as well as a few blurry images that, that seem to suggest some action that was affecting you, the photographer, not just mm-hmm. a, a documentarian, but, but someone that was involved mm-hmm. and subject to the danger of, of war. Was this an intentional choice of yours to to publish these somewhat unorthodox photos post-state of the war? Mm-hmm. The photography started out, the personal photography in the war was documentation for me. I would film an event, motion pictures, and then I'd grab my little tiny Bolenda camera, German-made thing, on my belt and take a few pictures for me that are what I was interested in. And those were mostly snapshots. They were just grabbing what was there, not anything posed. So, in a sense, uh, both the cinematography and my own little candid work were just documenting. Obviously, documentation involves selection. So it wasn't that I just shot everything that was happening. 
but I tried to shoot what I thought Uncle would like and uh, with the film and what I would like with the still camera. Now, can I ask, does the book include photographs both from your personal camera as well as your service camera? Yeah. The people in charge of us in the Army, the Signal Corps officers, full well knew that uh, cameramen, uh, that photography was a, was a, um, what do they say, an unreliable uh, art. It could could be out of focus. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be a number of things. So the cameraman needed feedback. Now, today, with modern digital cameras, you get immediate feedback mm-hmm. what you've taken. In the Army, I'd shoot a roll of film and uh, and take it out of the camera, put it in a box, and send it to England, and that's the last I saw, but mostly. Now, some of our younger listeners might might not be aware of how film cameras even work. Um, were you responsible for rolling your own film? Before? No. No, these uh, were uh, cans of film that held 100 foot of 16 millimeter film, black and white, uh, from Kodak. And uh, we just opened a can and loaded it in the camera and closed the door and started rolling. And then when we ran out of film, we just pulled it out and stuck it in a can and it was all. The uh, film was prevented from fogging because the reel was tight around it. Mm-hmm. And so once you got a few feet into the roll, uh, it was new, unexposed film. In contrast to that system, the roll film that I filmed for myself, I would uh, process at night sometimes. we In the field? Mm-hmm. And the signal photo company had some basic um, processing equipment. They could particularly process our four by five foot slides, not motion pictures, but. And I would just get a tray and process a roll film and uh, wash it as much as I could in the sink of the home that I was, German home that I was working in, and hang it up to dry and uh, take it down the next morning. So it's pretty primitive, and a lot of those films that I processed in the field, uh, my personal ones, got kind of scratched getting carried around in my duffel bag. I imagine so. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Malcolm Fleming. Professor Fleming served as an official Army Signal Corps photographer from 1942 to 1945 and was assigned to capture images of significant events during the Second World War. In May 2016, Professor Fleming published his collection of photographs from the war and the book From War to Peace in 1945 Germany, A GI's Experience. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. 
Our guest today is Professor Malcolm Fleming. Earlier, you mentioned your Valenda camera, and it's mm-hmm. mentioned a few times in your text. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Valenda, as I understand, was among the very first portable cameras that was widely available, um, mm-hmm. a German-produced object oh, from probably, I think, the 1920s, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you carried yours around in your first aid pack. Yeah. <laughs> many of our listeners now use their smartphones as the primary mm-hmm. means of photography. Mm-hmm. And in fact, many younger listeners may never own a standalone camera. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that some of your equipment and techniques were primitive, but at the time, did you were you aware that you were using cutting edge technology? Uh, was it a privilege to use the the motion picture camera, or was this more of a simple tool for you to get the job done? Well, it was certainly the best of technology available at the time, and I kind of felt the same way about the Belinda in that uh, it had a very good lens, a Snyder Kruznak lens and uh, manual adjusting of the <laughs> lens, guess distance, no range finders, mm-hmm. guess exposure, but it was a normal uh, f-stop system and shutter speed that, and it's uh, intrinsic to the... Did you have a light meter? I had one, but I didn't use it very often. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, no. when you take photographs today, do you use a digital camera or still film? Uh, I do now, ah. in the last couple of years. Well, many of your photographs, you mentioned earlier uh, from your travels were scratched or blurry. You mm-hmm. mentioned the inconsistencies, mm-hmm. the unreliability mm-hmm. of field photography. Mm-hmm. Reading your book, some readers might be struck by really the, the intense and personal character of the photographs, how immediate they seem uh, mm-hmm. and are quite immersive. Oftentimes, veterans uh, are reluctant to openly discuss service during wartime, especially combat, obviously due to the traumatic nature of war. Sure. Do you think that your book provides a personal perspective to view the experience of the war through the eyes of a general soldier serving in Germany during World War II? Not really. We were sort of follow-up. The GIs would go out and do their thing during the day and often at night. They would put up sometimes in their sleeping bag, but often in a German home that they would take over, grab a bed or anything they could get that was more comfortable, and then move on. The next day we were there and uh, slept in some of the same homes that they did. But we were just uh, a few hours behind them. I, I never really had the full frontline experience. We were always just a step or two or a kilometer or two behind them. And it wasn't our job to get out front and shoot them coming in. <laughs> the Germany was our job. Thank goodness. To be behind them and to document what they had done or were doing. Also, two other qualifiers. Um, I got there very late in the war. All of the real fighting, where most of the fatalities and everything that we hear about, had happened. And uh, I got there just at the beginning of a breakthrough. Crossing the Rhine was pivotal, mm-hmm. and I documented that. 
then on into uh, the hills and the Black Forest. I documented some of that. But that was pretty much it. Uh, Surrender came, and the Army had a tremendous job uh, knowing what to do with thousands of German prisoners on their hands all of a sudden. No problem. So uh, I can't say that I really had quite the, well, anywhere near the extreme trauma that the GIs had and, and or the photographers that were with them also during the landing. So um, one would have to say that um, this was pretty tame warfare than I, relatively, and speaking, anyway. Yes, a kilometer or two behind isn't, isn't exactly safe. <laughs> well, true, but it wasn't for long. Uh, about half the book is post-war. And that's an interesting feature. And that's, that's pretty fascinating and, and probably was one of the unique features of my book. That we well, were there long enough to, to document, and the Army kept tell, telling us, go out and shoot this, shoot that, shoot the other thing. So we were under orders to document uh, the occupation. One of the compelling features is how much attention you give to the Germans and to the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, mm-hmm. very recent past enemies in the United States mm-hmm. and for the Soviets at the time, uneasy allies and potential future enemies. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about your experiences with these foreign troops and your interactions with them? The Germans I first saw were dead Germans. And... Uh, uh, there were several days when there was quite a bit of that. Uh, our flamethrowers were devastating. And uh, so that was my first encounter with the Germans. But not too long afterwards, it seems to me, there were uh, prisoners that they didn't know what to do with and very docile prisoners. The ones that I saw first, at least, uh, looked as though they were delighted to be captured and then it's all over. We did see some, though, that uh, were the younger, real, patriotic, and zealous Germans. Some were young officers that had just been captured. They were quite another story. They were kept Heil Hitler, and we still want to die for the Fuhrer. So I saw a little of that, but not very much. This particular occasion I'm thinking of, the Germans they'd captured had, the day before, I guess, or night before, actually shot some, killed some American prisoners, prisoners that they had captured. And that didn't go over very well with our GIs. And by the time I left, it was unclear whether they were going to kill these captives or let them go because they were so eager to to, uh, fight. And they had just killed some of the companions of our soldiers, and so I'm not sure whether they lasted past that 
incident. It isn't to say that our soldiers made a common practice of killing prisoners, but there were times when strong tempers, sympathy, or, or desire to do that. And that's something that comes across, the, the emotional character mm-hmm. of the German prisoners of war as well as the Soviet infantry that you encountered. In fact, one affecting part of the book is a few photographs that include an image of a young female Soviet soldier, a sniper, uh, who you mentioned uh, was perhaps responsible for for killing some 120 German troops. That's what we were told. (laughs) And her cause for war was more personal than nationalistic. You mentioned that her entire family, it seems, or her... Most of her family were killed in the Battle of Stalingrad, yep. one of the greatest battles in human history and one that I think is relatively unknown mm-hmm. uh, in the history of World War II for many Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us more about your interactions with the Soviet troops? The only real personal reaction <laughs> was uh, at the link-up mm-hmm. uh, at the Elbe River the American and Russian officers were talking in in tortured German. That's the only thing they had in common with German. <laughs> so <laughs> one very good communication. But anyway, when they were ready to leave, the, the Russian general uh, asked his driver to crank up. Well, the driver tried and couldn't get the uh, American-made Jeep to start. <laughs> and so I stepped over there and pulled the choke and uh, got it starting right away. <laughs> <And> <laughs> this driver was so enthusiastic, he gave me a real bear hug that I'll never forget. <laughs> but as you mentioned the sniper. She was the other most impressive um, Russian person that I had any contact with. And mostly, uh, they used her as a sort of a PR piece, I think. They put her out front, and along with a couple of other Russian soldiers, but she was definitely featured. They had a sign picturing uh, the historic hookup, and everybody wanted a picture (laughs) of her and several other Russian soldiers in front of the sign. So uh, anyway, I have no idea how unusual she was, but she was surely pretty unique from our experience. The other Russian experience, that was all pretty civilized, let's say. Nobody was fighting each other then. Later, when the Russian forces actually entered East Germany, was another matter. The Germans were trying to welcome them, but not being very successful at it. And soon you had more Germans and Poles on your hands. (laughs) They were uh, really feared by the Germans, the occupiers. And the first wave that came that we saw was pretty respectable. Tanks and uh, military vehicles uh, hauling their GIs. (laughs) But later... Some pretty ragged-looking troops on carts behind horse-drawn 
on horse-drawn uh, vehicles, they were a very ragtag looking bunch that I wouldn't want to live very near. So uh, those are my Russian impressions. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Findlay. Our guest today is Professor Malcolm Fleming. Professor Fleming served as an official Army Signal Corps photographer from 1942 to 1945 and was assigned to capture images of significant events during the Second World War. In May of 2016, Professor Fleming published his collection of photographs in the book From War to Peace in 1945 Germany, a GI's experience. We'll be right back. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Andrew Finley. Our guest today is Malcolm Fleming. Earlier you mentioned uh, the old-timers who who taught you more about photography during your training days. And in your acknowledgments, I noticed that you mentioned two other servicemen, a Lieutenant Sykes and a Lieutenant Rosenman. Can you tell us more about who those two were, and did you keep in touch after the war? Well, we were a signal photo company, and they were our leader. We actually were attached to two different armies, first for a while and third for a while. Also, the other photographers in the company that had a lot more experience were very helpful for me. And uh, I sometimes got too eager, and they tried to slow me down because <laughs> I was a, a greenie and they were old hats. I remember one event I guess it was our tanks were heading into the Black Forest that uh, I thought uh, the perspective of a line of tanks and troops uh, would be best up at tank level. So I climbed up on a tank and started taking pictures. <laughs> and the officer in charge said two things. You can't photograph anything at this stage of the war that hasn't already been photographed. <laughs> Further, get down. You're uh, in danger, and there's no point in you risking your life up there. <laughs> so I got down. But you got the photographs. But I did get a photograph, yeah. Did you keep in touch with anyone else in, in the Signal Corps company after the war? No, I regret that. Uh, somehow I just kind of wanted to be put that all behind me and was wondering what's next. There were certainly some Indiana soldiers that I took pictures of. During downtime, while the troops were still there and not engaged, part of our job was to grab a still camera and go around to various uh, encampments and just take uh, pictures of GIs in their environment. Uh, was name, rank, serial number, hometown, name of hometown newspaper as part of the data we gathered. And then those, as I understood, were processed and sent to the hometown newspaper. So I know there were some Indiana people that I photographed. And at that time, you didn't know you'd become one. Yeah, I didn't. And that's true. I didn't. So that was all interesting, but uh, it didn't. Uh, materialize into anything later. 
my access to IU was all kind of accidental, too. Right after the war, I still wanted to do something photographic, but I didn't want to do any of the conventional portraiture sort of things. So uh, we were uh, discharged uh, on the East Coast, and I thought, well, Kodak's here, Rochester. Why not try Rochester? So I tried Rochester, and they hired me. I was there for three years, and I was in the research building, but I was just a flunky. They called me a junior chemist, but basically what I did was uh, process experimental color films that they were working on then. That's about all I did. <laughs> Uh, but in the church that I went to there, downtown church, there was a guy who was in the uh, education part of it who I talked to, and uh, he said, did you ever think about doing photography-related education? I said, no. He said, well, there's a new field, and the Army, and I then realized the Army had done a lot with film, and training and so on. So that might be an opportunity. He said, there's one place in the country where there's a, an aggressive new leader. Uh, you call it audiovisual education. And he's at Indiana University. So I, I came here. His name was L.C. Larson. He ran uh, uh, that department, the audiovisual department. We took motion pictures of a little 500 and other things. <laughs> and then he got the idea of uh, commercializing on this. We had a film library, 16-millimeter educational film library, and he thought we could add to it. So it was set up so we would uh, work with a group of uh, people. Always there was an IU professor like in science, there was a high school teacher in science, and then there was us filmmakers. And we'd sit down and, and develop a script, and then we'd film the script, and we'd edit the script, and then we had a department that marketed it. So the whole idea was uh, IU would invest money into this, and then by way of sale of the prints, the money would come back. And it really worked fairly well for a number of years. Well, not a number, several years. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience here at IU. I began to teach, and then I began to do research. <laughs> and so I didn't do any more producing of classroom films. I produced research instead and did some teaching. Well, on the subject of education... In the actual text of the book, many readers are likely to be impressed by the education that they receive reading about mm -hmm. military practice, including mm -hmm. vocabulary, equipment, mm -hmm. procedures. Mm -hmm. Was it part of your goal in writing and publishing this book to provide a, a bit of a general education on military procedure, or was it a happy accident? Well, my motive was authenticity. I could have retranslated all that into more normal English but I decided uh, this needs to feel like a field notebook. And so the captions are unedited. Mm -hmm. That's right. So partly because that was the easy thing to do. They were there. 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it was required to by the Army to write a summary story of each story we filmed that went in with it, and, and that was essential. So I got in the habit of documenting with words at least a summary of what was going on. So I did it for my uh, pictures as well as for uh, Signal Corps. And you took an innovative approach in the book by pairing your original field notes with some recent commentary or, or modern editions, which are in italics. Um, they, mm-hmm. they serve to define acronyms, further explain some mm-hmm. abbreviated points. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost gives a sense in reading the book of two distinct voices, uh, your younger self and your current self, almost as if you're explaining a bit more on what you originally had written. Was this an, an intentional choice? Uh, I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we were always trained in composing a communication. Think of the audience. That, that training came at IU. Know your audience was fundamental and have some objectives that <laughs> <It> was educational. <laughs> So I got into that mode when I wrote the book. I mean, when I put the book together. When the audience shifted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why so, did you choose now? And just past May of 2016 to publish um, this. I did this whole thing for my own record. In the last days over there, and as soon as I got back, I finished processing everything and made postcard-sized prints of everything. And on the back, type to caption. So it was all in an inseparable piece. Then I put those together in groups by film and uh, had them spiral bound. So I had a stack of those like this. And that was just for my own amazement. I'd show it to people. Uh, But that was it. Uh, After I'd been here for a while, uh, I imagine 15 years ago at least that I approached uh, IU Press with that pile of pictures and captions. And they looked it over with due deliberation and finally said, uh, no, it's very interesting, but we would have been uh, involved with you if it had been uh, a few years before when their market said German or war pictures were or books were of interest. So that ended that. So then, I don't know, X number of years later, I thought, well, why not try it again? <laughs> and so this time they were interested that uh, the market, there's a lot of current interest in World War II. And uh, so they decided that this was the time. That's the publishing history. <laughs> well, it's an, a needed and important source of firsthand photographs, firsthand views mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the experiences of yeah, the European theater. I was a little sensitive about uh, being representing it as history because my uh, high school. Uh, course in history, world history, was very boring to me. It was just, uh, as I recall now, just memorizing dates. 
And so history was one course, I guess I'd say, and a long series of courses that really I didn't like, and hence didn't learn much. So when I came to doing this book, and I had uh, historians looking at it, I thought, uh, uh, I better make clear that this is this is only one man's observations. It's not necessarily history. So that's why I added to the title a GI's experience because I didn't want it to be uh, judged as uh, book history. So in that way, would you consider the book to be more of Documentation or fitting under the category of art or something else? Documentation. I never thought of my photography as art until recently. That's sort of strange. In fact, uh, I was in the education department here doing motion pictures and teaching students to do uh, educational slides or motion pictures or whatever. And... uh, we saw it as a problem that some students wanted to be too artsy about it, that they wanted to make it pretty but maybe not authentic. So it was was interestingly enough, it was a point then that we were sort of sensitive about. Uh, We should have encouraged both, but what we encouraged was authenticity. And uh, it's only since then that I've in very recent years, the last six, seven years, began showing enlargements at art shows. Hmm. Uh, I just first began showing people prints and, and then learned of the opportunity to show them at art shows and <laughs> dived into that. Have you seen some success in doing so? Yeah. In fact, I even set myself up as a photo business for about four years. <laughs> And um, in my late 80s and 90s, I became a businessman. (laughs) Anyway, that changed the whole picture. People kept commenting about uh, nice composition or you got this just right and so on. Well, I'd had, I guess, some vague notions about composition all along to try to get the best angles and so on. But I never thought of it as art until recently. And uh, I now uh, kind of identify with that in part. So that's a change in my orientation, my thinking, my behavior. And do you think that influenced uh, the composition of this publication? Probably some. Maybe, well, yes, definitely. I was going to say at first more unconsciously. But there was some conscious thought about the artistry of it. And I have one final question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you wrote the book for yourself. Mm-hmm. But who do you see the audience as? Good question. Well, it's interesting that uh, IU Press early on wanted me to go in great detail about what I thought the audience might be because they had marketing (laughs) dollars in mind. So I mostly thought of military people 
military organizations. Uh, so uh, I went partly to by what I saw people in my art shows. That opened the door for me, opened my eyes regarding the war pictures. I did a lot of displaying of everything else that I'd photographed. And then one day I said, well, why don't you try a few of your war pictures? Because I was sure people didn't want to be reminded of war or see war pictures. So I started to display a few, and lo and behold, that was proved to be pretty popular. <laughs> so that got me to thinking maybe I did have a resource there that had an audience. And that was a learning experience for me. I didn't think there was an audience at first. Well, I'm glad you found one. (laughs) And finally, where can people find your book? Uh, Barnes & Noble. And it's on the web. Excellent. Either one. Don't come to me. I'm, people <laughs> seem to think that I should have copies to sell them, but uh, I'm out of, of one business and I don't want to get into another. <laughs> uh, further, I'd have to buy them from IU Press and then resell them. That's Barnes & Noble's job, not mine. <laughs> so I'm glad to refer. <laughs> I've been speaking today with our guest, Professor uh, Malcolm Fleming. Thank you for being with us. That was Andy Finley speaking with photographer Malcolm Fleming. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations about World War II. In the final part of the hour, we'll hear a short excerpt from a 2015 interview with military historian Sir Hugh Strawn. Patrick O'Mara spoke with Strawn in April of 2015. Sir Hugh, welcome to Profiles. I'd like to know a little more about someone who becomes deeply involved in war. Ah, <laughs> that's the sort of question my wife asks me. Can't, <laughs> I can't understand why anybody should be interested in war. I have to say, at one level, it's not a totally flippant response. I never grew out of toy soldiers. Uh, and, of course, I'm also of a generation where I was brought up surrounded by war because my father's generation had served in the Second World War. So all my friends' fathers had bits of military kit which they brought back from the war that we played the equivalent of cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians in. And that was a way, I suppose, of emulating what our fathers had been doing. Uh, And indeed, in Edinburgh, where I was brought up, you used to see the local territorial army unit would go off to to do their drills and, and exercises at the weekend. And I was brought up initially in the new town. And I remember, and I can't believe this is a figment of my imagination, tank transporters going through the middle of the new town in Edinburgh, picking up the officers of the local Yeomanry Regiment, of whom my father was one, in order to drive off to Dunbar to do their exercises. It's been said that the war unleashed a flood tide of forces that we've been unable ever since to stem Mm. beyond the war itself. Yes, of course. And that seems to me true. And I think one of there is a sort of paradox that as we get further away from the Second World War, so in some ways we get closer to the First World War. I, I, I think this is particularly true 
for the United States as, as, as it confronts the centenary. Because for the United States, the First World War is, after all, you know, a secondary consideration. That It's only now addressing the issue of whether it should have a National War Memorial yeah. and where it should be uh, when it has National War Memorials for all the other major wars that America has fought. One of the reasons why it can seem secondary is because the Second World War has been elevated into this caricature of itself uh, as the good war, as the war justified right. by the Holocaust, as though that's the reason the United States goes to war, which it isn't, or justified because it's a war of national self-defense because the United States is attacked at Pearl Harbor. What I think that that eliminates is all the ambiguities surrounding the Second World War, moral and ethical, which the First World War carries too. I mean, all wars carry moral ambiguities. And I think that as we go into the 21st century and we ask ourselves questions about when is it right to go to war, when is it right uh, to carry on fighting a war, when a war becomes protracted and casualty, level, level, casualty levels are rising, how do you end a war? How do you end a war satisfactorily so that the peace is lasting? Um, the First World War actually carries a, a great deal of purchase for us because those who were fighting it were aware of these ambiguities but still felt it was important and necessary to fight it. Um, and I think that is, that, that is extraordinarily instructive for us. Um, so it's not just that we live with the aftermath in, the t in terms of modern war, in terms of modern states, in terms of the entry of the United States to the world order, all these sorts of things which continue to carry political significance and particularly, of course, political significance in the Middle East with, with ongoing conflicts surrounding the 1919 settlement. It's also that there is an immediacy in the more general questions about war that the First World War can raise. How would you contrast this with World War II? Where I would see the similarities is that I don't think anybody in their right mind goes into a world war. I don't think that's true in 1914. I don't think it's true in 13, 1939. But what does happen is that separate conflicts, to use a, 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 a verb which I don't think is probably a verb, but international relations theorists would want to use, um, separate conflicts bandwagon on the original conflict. So, you know, a local war in the case of the Balkans in 1914 then attracts other wars, including essentially Japan's war against China, right. uh, including uh, the Ottoman Empire's uh, war to recover its own frontiers. Uh, these are nothing to do with the original conflict, but everything to do with the set of local ambitions, which aggregate. And, and there is a parallel with the Second World War. When does the Second World War really begin? If you asked an American that question, the answer would be 1941. Of course. If you ask a, a Brit that question, it's 1939. If you asked a Japanese or a Chinese that question, it would be possibly 1937, possibly earlier. And uh, you know, what we're looking at is different conflicts which come together, uh, which in aggregation make a world war, but which give the lie to uh, any awareness, any sense that there is that, that, that a state consciously goes into a world war as opposed to a regional war. And I, I, for me, that's an object lesson. I mean, we, you need to realize how little uh, international relations can be controlled. Uh, once you're at war, the capacity for escalation is enormous. And the business of people being killed itself justifies the perpetuation of war. I mean, I think it's a paradox that we simply in peacetime and in our conditions of relative peace that we enjoy today for all the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or in Syria, uh, the, you know, those of us who live in, in Europe or the United States, the conditions of relative peace we enjoy today, 
mean that we fail to realize the power of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. But we also have to recognize that maybe Neville Chamberlain was wrong. Indeed, you know, there may be a moment when you have to go to war. Absolutely, when 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 war has utility. When when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, uh, there was a historian called Maurice Cowling uh, at Peterhouse who was a very well, a conservative who essentially he he resisted any political title, but conservative would be right. Who essentially argued, especially in relation to the Second World War, that Britain should have stayed out. That this is the end of Britain's power because it bankrupts itself by could fighting it, this could war. Could it have stayed out? No, uh, that's and, what that, I, that, and that's really the point. Exactly yeah. so. Uh, that that its decline would have been even greater and even faster if it had stayed right. out. I mean, there there comes a point when you may just have to fight. And, and German atrocities, vis-a-vis the Holocaust, actually validates. Well, in, in retrospect, but Britain in did not go. I mean, oh, no, it didn't know, go in for that. Britain did not. Britain went into war for right. traditional balance of power reasons, right. essentially. Right. What's the value of history of war in the end? Two answers to that question. The first is that I'm not for a moment one of those who believes that history teaches us lessons, but I think it teaches us wisdom. I think it teaches us an understanding. This is a very Clausewitzian point, actually, and that if we don't have the context. Uh, then our own immediate experiences tend to overwhelm us, tend to swamp us. We lack context. Anybody who serves in a war quite naturally prioritizes his or her own experience, let's say, in Afghanistan. Where does Afghanistan fit in the wider scheme of things? History is almost the only tool we have, it seems to me, to make sense of that. The second point is a point Mark Bloch, the great analyst and French historian, made, which is that History, in particular the history of war, is about understanding change, not about understanding continuity. Too often when people say, well, history is of no use in understanding war, it's, it's on the assumption that it'll be about old lessons and about the past, about continuities. I would argue um, that actually war is an agent for change. It's much less the continuation of policy than a break in policy, especially for democratic states. It's revolutionary in its effects. And so in terms of the centenary... You do say, if we can use this, this war, to understand war better, we've accomplished something. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that, I think, is the great opportunity a protracted centenary gives us to engage in the process of understanding. That was Patrick O'Mara speaking with military historian Sir Hugh Strawn in April of 2015. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.